Hello and welcome back to the CL Race in America podcast. To start off, we'd like to give a special shout out to this episode's sponsor, Dean Dial. Today, we've invited historians Sophia Prendergast and Zoe Alfred from Windsor, Connecticut to have a brief discussion on today's topic, racism and advertising. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having us. I was talking to Zoe before coming on your podcast today, and we are super excited to have the open-based conversation and share our research we've discovered. Yeah, so first, let's lay the groundwork of the broader topic for this episode, racism and advertising. Today, we're going to consider advertising as really anything that shapes our perception of things without us actually experiencing them. So we're talking about, yes, product labels, media, any sort of publication and forms of storytelling, such as the press, literature, movies, and shows. And we also want to consider art and entertainment, including clothing and music. In fact, advertising is what really furthers race as a meta-language in American society. As some of you might recognize, I'm referencing Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, who introduced this term to us back in September. And hopefully, what you will clearly see from today's episode is that all these advertising mediums historically created very skewed perceptions of each race, allowing race to transcend real categories and create these incomplete pictures in people's heads of complex identities. Okay, so where and how did racist advertising originate, and what did it look like? So it's really interesting because the roots of advertising can be found in the slavery area through literature, photography, and posters. Historian Matthew Fox Amato places the birth of American visual politics in this era. So one example that I really want to point out is that during the 19th century, pro-slavery books were dominating America to justify the institution. Southern slave owners had this intention to expand slavery. So in order to convince that slaves would have better lives than northern wage laborers, they would essentially publish these false tales of slaves dancing and feasting on Christmas. And then within white families, pro-slavery ideals were also casually perpetuated with photography, where slaveholders had these solo portraits of their favorite slave servants. And these portraits were the ones that became passed down through generations forming these benevolent images of slavery. Yeah, something that's often not discussed is the stereotypes of Arabs and the huge role TV played reproducing Middle Eastern stereotypes. One thing that advertising does excellently is totalizing different foreign ethnic identities. And so many journalists on news sites like US News reduced all these different ethnic identities, Palestinians, Lebanese, Iraqis, into one 2D identity of being radical terrorists. And TV spread these ideas until they were everywhere. The famous Dennis the Menace comic strip that was introduced into the 50s accused Arabs of stealing all the turkey on Thanksgiving. These stereotypes were even recycled inside influential intellectual novels at the time, like the Hajj or Evergreen. So, all of these different mediums were projecting the same stereotype of these diverse identities little by little, and together they permeated people's lives. Yeah, Dr. Prendergast here is a food advertising specialist. Do you want to add on? Yes, thank you, Amy. Today I will be adding to this discussion by talking about my research in racism and in the food industry. As America started shifting into its industrial and urbanization period, we continue to see how racism spread from farms to grocery stores. In addition, we see how these racist logos produced by food companies make their way into the entertainment industry through commercials. Peter Lang breaks racism in the modernized advertising industry down into two parts, which makes it easier to comprehend. 
He says African Americans and other non-white Americans were sidelined because the advertising industry regarded them as being financially incapable to buy and advertise products. A majority of advertising agencies were owned by members of the mainstream culture who disavowed the idea of depicting the non-white populations in positive ways. His points are non-negotiable because they are true and there's evidence, especially in the food marketing industry, that indicates racism and the common disgusting stereotype characters that follow. According to racism in American popular media, these stereotypes include African Americans as intolerant, unintelligent, comical, as ambos or mammies, as oddly speaking or dress. They also include portrayals of Latinos as thieves, bandits, or urban thugs as lazy. Latinos are sexually hot as law-breaking border crossers who solely dress in sombreros and surfas. For Native Americans, their depiction were often rooted in their place in the North American history. They were either a dying breed of disappearing people or bound to the reservation or both. Asians were shown as unhygienic people who spread disease, as individuals who are perpetually foreign. The same could be said for Native Americans and Latinos. One example I really want to point out is Frito Bandito, the controversial mascot the Frito-Lay company used to market its products from 1967 to 1971. Frito's new mascot, was, which robbed people for, of their Fritos at gunpoint, received complaints about the racist stereotypical Mexican bandit image it was depicting. When Fritos began to advertise its products through commercials, they hired Mel Blanc, a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant known for providing the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and Porky Pig, the voice Frito Bandito, a character based on Mexican-Americans. I am the Frito Bandito. Yay! I like Fritos corn chips. I love them. I do. I want Fritos corn chips. I'll get them from you. This offensive accent, which can be heard in all of this work, especially in Frito Bandito's trademark jingle, can be compared to Apu and Hank Azaria's offensive work today. Historian Zoe Alford, a specialist in racism in the fashion industry, has more. Zoe? Yeah. So I'd like to talk about how clothing as a powerful symbol of status and identity all throughout history has played a huge role in the perception of people and their place within society. For this, I'd like to refer to Professor Richard Thomas Ford's video in which he touches on the connections within history of race, clothing, and politics. Within the colonial era in the United States, or at the time, the colonies, um, it was common that the idea that people shouldn't dress above their status, um, which created a racial hierarchy that was reflected within clothes. Um, many times black people who were dressing above what was expected of them were attacked for it, which would su support white supremacy as it continued the idea that black people should dress as if they were subordinate. Um, this continued all the way until the civil rights movement, where t activists challenged this idea by purposefully dressing up at protests as a political statement and demand to be treated equally to white citizens. When discussing racism in advertising, we can't not bring up Crenshaw's sociological method known as intersectionality. How does intersectionality tie into or play a role in the advertising industry? I think that the LGBTQ intersectionality piece is really important to highlight given that Kimberly Crenshaw's theory on intersectionality tells us that it's impossible to fully understand systemic racism without acknowledging the other systems such as gender or sexuality that are at play. The first thing that I want to look at is not within the ad industry, but actually to acknowledge the importance of what audiences are being targeted, either intentionally or unintentionally, by this advertising. 
So I wanted to take a look at a study done by the Department of Medical Oncology for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute that tracked who was most exposed to tobacco ads and tracked sexuality alongside gender, race, and ethnicity. They analyzed people ages 18 to 24 from the 2013-2014 U.S. Population Assessment of Tobacco and Health Study and compared encoded exposure to e-cigarettes, cigarettes, cigars, and smokeless tobacco. From their results, bisexual Black women were the most exposed to these type of ads. And additionally, from their results, stripping it of sexuality and gender, Black people of all genders and sexualities had the highest exposure to tobacco ads as a group. From this study, we can take away that ads not only impact people because of the content of these ads, but also because of the populations that are exposed to it. Of course, I also wanted to touch on an example that demonstrates homophobia within this industry. So we're going to take a look at the Nike Hyperdunk 2008 ad campaign. It's also important to note that these ads were actually pulled very shortly after Nike put them out originally due to their controversy. So the ad that you're going to see up now is called That Ain't Right. This ad displays homophobia and racism and alludes to the idea that toxic masculinity and the fear of being humiliated by another man through emasculation. This ad also demonstrates the idea that is wrong, but the idea nonetheless that being gay isn't manly, but actually weak. It's also interesting to think of how historian Bell Hooks talks about how capitalism had a profound effect on Black masculinity because Black men have had an unequal opportunity to prove themselves in the labor market and thus have had to resort to other ways of establishing their masculinity, which can be seen in this ad above. So the ad here plays on the idea by Michael Kimmel that homophobia isn't a hatred of being gay always, but actually a fear of being socially perceived as gay and therefore weak. Also, the color red that is shown by the player up in the ad often signifies wrong and stop. And this is, since it's the only piece of color in the ad, the eye is actually automatically drawn to this instead of the shoe itself. Thus, the shoe fades into the background and only juxtaposes the two players in their conflict. Additionally, the layer of the juxtaposition between the darker skinned black man and the lighter skinned man adds a racial component to the ad and the idea that the black man is dominating the other. Nike explicitly chose this power dynamic, thinking of its target audience, young black boys. Lastly, the title of this ad, referring to the red player getting dunked on, can easily be reflected in the emasculation of the red player. My next two examples are women that are wrongfully depicted in the food industry advertising. Um, these examples both tie into what you have been saying, uh, Savannah, with the intersectionality, uh, which Crenshaw dives deeper into. Switching gears to land Oak Lakes butter, as their logo targets Native American community negatively, on the box of butter there is a maiden referred to as Mia knelt down before green meadows and blue lakes, wearing buckskin beads and red, white, and blue feathers. This stereotypical depiction of Native Americans stems all the way back from 1492. These days, American Indian symbols are everywhere. They are symbols of, Euro of European American natives that ignores the genocide, disease, and cultural devastation brought to their com communities. Finally, the ironic Aunt Jemima brand. First, it started with ReadyMix for pancakes. However, the brand continued to spread, producing other products like syrup and frozen waffles. Aunt Jemima was first introduced as a character in a minstrel show, an American form of entertainment developed in the 19th century. Each show consisted of comedic skits, variety acts, dancing, and music. The show was performed while white people and blackface um, were the purpose of playing the roles of black people. 
However, Aunt Jemima, the brand was inspired by a song, Old Aunt Jemima, which was performed by men in blackface as well. One of the men depicted Aunt Jemima, a slave mammy of the South Plantation. The mammy who appears on the Aunt Jemima's packaging was made a super unattractive, um, to appear super unattractive, so no white man could ever want her over his wife. There are obviously a lot more examples of women being constantly sexualized and fetishized in the media, but these are just two that date back to early America. This is still a common issue in, in advertising, in all advertising today, which hopefully will get the attention it desperately needs soon. Yeah, and speaking of intersectionality and gender, I also want to bring in an example of how the media has targeted Arab men and women in very different ways. So in all mediums of fiction, there was this recycled stereotype of wealthy Arab male characters with a bunch of wives and anger issues were abusive womanizers. And then there were Arab women who from the 19th century were the veiled women, objectified with famous depictions of belly dancers and maidens until they were really reduced to nothing more than the belly dancer. Zoe, do you want to add on yeah. to that? So the fashion, fashion advertising, which started all the way back in the 18th and 19th centuries, also had a huge negative impact on both the out, outwards and inwards percep perception of black women. Um, for example, in many of these early ads, they were only depicting white upper class women in terms of clothing that was determining what was in and out of style, or even going as far as determining what was considered civilized versus uncivilized. Um, because of the very non-diverse um, ads, black women were left out of white women consumerism, and it also hurt their image of how women of color perceived themselves in comparison to the rest of what was the accepted part of society. Um, the contrast of black and white women advertising advertisement challenges the femininity of women of color. Um, a piece of literature that greatly exemplifies this is The Blue's Eye by Toni Morrison, where the main character um, struggles with self-acceptance because of the, the praise awarded to white women in advertisement in comparison to black women. Um, another example of how that fashion trends can and advertisements can put down women of color specifically is in acrylic nails, which actually originated from women of color um, in ancient Egypt, but now are, are common for all women to wear. However, it is also common that they are deemed tacky or unprofessional when worn by women of color, whereas white women are praised, um, which is just another example of how gender also affects um, race in terms of the fashion advertising. Commercial break. We've talked about American institutions that came out of slavery and perpetuated racism throughout history. How did advertising play a role in the racism of some of these institutions? Um, in terms of the economy, um, within modeling, it was a common belief. It is a common belief, whether conscious or non-conscious, that diversity and luxury were inversely related. This mis misconception perpetuates harmful ideas surrounding race and class as well as gatekeeps elitist fashion aesthetics. Many high-end brands, for example, Valentino, thrive off of their exclusivity and are currently struggling at becoming more inclusive within their advertising. Considering housing, I want to bring up how throughout the 20th century, there was this pattern of only using white models in real estate ads, especially for private housing and resorts. Thinking about capitalism, Uncle Ben's Rice um, is a good example of all kinds of food products such as the ones that Sophia mentioned that were catering to um, consumers through racism. So Uncle Ben's Rice was developed in World War II um, 
Uncle Ben is decked in a suit and bow tie, reminiscent of older male service workers and butlers back in World War II. But then this image remained like that throughout the 1900s, assuring white consumers of their status and comforting them with the feeling of personal service. Of course, this is a marketing tactic, and this really connects us back to September when we learned about how whiteness is supported by negative images of non-whites in the article, White Lines. It's also interesting to look at how diversity as a priority has been exploited under capitalism. The once popular brand Abercrombie & Fitch is a great example of this in their tokenism within both their ad campaigns and their brand as a whole. In the Netflix documentary White Hot about Abercrombie & Fitch, it highlights its tokenism in having only one non-white person in an ad to claim being diverse. Additionally, internally, in the company sources in the documentary, they say that only a few people were hired for the sake of having a diverse committee to okay all these diverse ad campaigns, which essentially wasn't actually having any power to change anything. This really raises the question of how diversity works and how holding brands accountable for their actions must be done in an authentic way. Um, within both, both the music and crossing over with the fashion industry, um, many large fashion corporations um, reproduce and profit from black culture while, no, while giving no actual credit um, to the black people that it originated with. For example, monogram print um, was very popular with rappers such as Dapper Dan in the 1980s um, in Harlem, New York, and is now very common with many large brands such as Louis Vuitton um, and many of the artists, the music art, musical artists who started um, popularizing these trends aren't given credit while the white owners of these large companies are. Another example are um, hoop earrings, which were a powerful symbol of non-European cultures throughout history, going as far back as the Bronze Age in fourth century Africa, um, specifically in Egypt. And now, and more modernly, were born by um, jazz performers um, and activists um, and used to celebrate Afrocentric dresses, dressing and are even pop and are continue to be popular today, however, are not given the appropriate credit um, both of these are examples of erasure um, within the fashion industry and advertisement. Right, and tying this back to the food industry, the three examples that I mentioned before have effectively been retired or altered through advocacy groups. Uh, for example, the Mexican-American Anti-Deformination uh, Com Committee created in 1968. These three mainstream brands uh, opened up the conversation for companies questioning if their labels or logos are racist or targeting marginalized populations. In the past couple of years, other food brands such as Cream of Wheat, Miss Butterworth, and Uncle Ben's, like you mentioned before, Amy, have changed or have still um, are in the process of fixing their racist marketing. Overall, more generally speaking, advertising's sole purpose is to appeal to the ads of society in order to attract for business and make a profit. The presence of such strong racism in advertising demonstrates how deeply ingrained racist ideas are embedded throughout society, throughout history, and even into today. All right, folks, looks like that's going to be it for today. If you want to find out more, our next topic that delves into colorism, stay tuned for our next episode featuring historians.